Those with a drive to go have an undeniable calling. They are not content to simply have a transformative idea. They want to create and build. They want to wrestle challenges to the ground and bring solutions to scale. They are makers and doers. They are go-getters. Go-Getters features straight-up conversations with leaders on the forefront of change who are taking action to impact our world, just as Lehigh people have done for more than 150 years. Join us as we explore their challenges, their passions, and what makes them go. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Go-Getters podcast. I'm Joe Buck, and today I'd like to welcome entrepreneur, professor, and author John Mullins. John graduated from Lehigh in 1967 with a degree in mathematics, then earned his MBA at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and his PhD at the University of Minnesota. He is currently an associate professor of management practice at the London Business School. John is an award-winning teacher and scholar and one of the world's foremost thought leaders in entrepreneurship. He recently released his latest book titled, Break the Rules, the six counter-conventional mindsets of entrepreneurs that can help anyone change the world. Welcome, John. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be uh, engaged with anything that has to do with Lehigh. Well, I uh, really appreciate it, and I know that the I will speak for the audience, which I don't generally do, that there will be a lot of excitement uh, around this this podcast, and, and we'll talk about your new book in a moment. But let me start with Lehigh, your Lehigh experience. How, how did you find your way to Lehigh, John? Good question, Joe. I was uh, in high school. I loved numbers. I loved math, and I and I wanted to go to a school where where I could focus on that. And uh, that list came down to MIT and Lehigh. And I did a uh, a visit to to Lehigh, and I loved it so much that I said, I don't need to apply to MIT. I just want to come to Lehigh. And I applied to Early Decision, and thankfully, uh, somebody saw fit to to have me join, join the family, and one of the best decisions I ever made. Well, thank you. And I will tell you that, that some things stay the same over time, John. We had record applications this year, and, and the correlation and, and causality of campus visits to applicants remains high. I think once right. candidates see the campus and feel it, yeah. it makes a tremendous difference uh, um, for on the on the admission side. And so really a um, nice rebound for the university post pandemic where we weren't doing in-person visits and and as I said record applications this year. So on the right uh, on the right trajectory. Now, you said you were a, a math major. Help me understand the, the the connection between math and entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> um, well, well, very interestingly, you know, I I came to Lehigh because I I thought I wanted to study math, but then as I as I began to take all the math courses, uh, they kept having to 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 make me prove theorems, Joe, and and I said to myself, well, wait a second, somebody didn't somebody already prove these theorems? Why why am I being asked to prove them again? Um, and what I discovered and what what made Lehigh in part so valuable to me was that there was a whole world outside mathematics. So when I got to the point where I'd taken all the courses I needed for my math major and began to dabble in other things, uh, that's where my education really got interesting. And how about outside the classroom, John? Were there things that you experienced at Lehigh that that you can attribute to um, success in the rest of your journey? Yeah, indeed. All my first leadership experiences were at Lehigh. I, I was fortunate to be elected uh, president of my fraternity. 
that was a wonderful role. I captained the tennis team. Um, you know, I, I became a you know, I, I became an adult at Lehigh. It was a wonderful foundation for the career that that followed. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see it coming. I, I didn't really know about that side of an education. You know, when you when you finish high school and you head off to college, you think it's all about what happens in the classroom. Wrong. You know, a lot of it's what happens outside the classroom. And that that was a big part of why Lehigh was so special for me. And reiterating, as I mentioned a moment ago, some things remain constant, and and that yeah. those are fundamentals of a Lehigh education today, uh, John. Um, let me ask you, you know, in, in 1967, I, you may know the answer to this. I don't know the history of the word entrepreneurship, and I don't know if it was a thing in 1967. It was not. It, it was clearly uh, was not. Yeah. Nor nor was it on my radar. And in fact, um, you know, I I went. Back in those days, you could go directly from undergrad to a good business school. That, that's hard today, but in, in those days, I could do that. And and you might be surprised to know that I never heard the word entrepreneur at Stanford Business School in 1967, eight, and nine. Uh, it just was not on anybody's radar, n- nor was it on mine. Uh, and it didn't get onto my radar till later in my career when I joined a little company called the Gap Stores in California and and saw how much fun it was to to grow a business and that's where i became interested in entrepreneurship and was that learning how to be entrepreneurial in a in a company like gap or was it learning to be an entrepreneur if 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 you can differentiate the the two things we talk here a lot about entrepreneurial mindset um, you know, not, not, not all of our students are destined for venture creation, but they certainly need to um, um, have or understand that entrepreneurial mindset. So how did you get, how did you transition to venture creation? After business school, I worked for a big supermarket chain in Chicago, and then I uh, had the good chance to, to meet with a classmate of mine after I'd been with Jewel in, in, for seven years. A classmate of mine had joined Gap as a senior operations guy. He too had joined the retailing industry with Dayton Hudson and got recruited to Gap. And and Jack was looking for some more uh, skilled and smart people that understood retailing. And I was working in that industry. And and we had a cup of coffee one day. And he said, "Why don't you Why don't you get out of supermarkets and come join this little company we're trying to build here?" Uh, and, and I thought that sounded like fun. Uh, and it turned out to be a ton of fun. So we, we grew Gap in those in those years from 100 to 400 stores in three years, uh, and that in a in a people intensive business that's a staggering achievement. And, and uh, in the process of that, I learned how much fun it was to do those sorts of things. And and at the same time, by the time we got to 400 stores, I felt Gap was getting a bit more bureaucratic, a, a bit less entrepreneurial. It's one of the challenges companies face as they grow. Sure. Uh, and I'd learned to do some things and I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go do some things on my own. So, so I left gap, um, did two startups after that. One of them failed. That's, that's one where I learned a whole lot. Um, so, so, you know, it happens. It's, it wasn't a career plan. Uh, a Lehigh student asked me in Silicon, Lehigh, Silicon Valley last year, John, would you talk about the plan that's led to this interesting career you've had? And I said, plan? There was no plan. <laughs> you know, a door opens in front of you and, uh, and you walk through that door. You mentioned uh, that you, you know, started a business that, uh, that failed. 
Could you talk about what you what you learned from failure, or what you talk to your students about? You know what what the opportunities are to learn from failure. Well, the the entrepreneurial path path is is littered with what some people would call failure. Uh, others call it learning. Um, in, in Silicon Valley, they like to say that failure is a is an education on somebody else's dollar. And and you know, you know you learn about customers, you learn about trying to figure out what they want and what they really need and what they'll pay for, and all those things are different. Uh, you learn about the kind of people you need to have on your team because what you're doing today may not be uh, what you need to do tomorrow. Businesses need to pivot, as as we say in the entrepreneurship world these days. And one of the big lessons I learned in in the startup that failed is I I I'd I'd recruited a board, a really good board to help us execute on plan A. But when technology changed and plan A wasn't the right thing to be doing, we probably didn't have the right people around the table to help us uh, see the necessity for those changes and then and then to navigate them. And, and uh, that was a big, big lesson for me. Would you, switching gears a little bit, John, would you talk about your pivot from uh, entrepreneur to teacher and mentor? By my mid-40s, I've been in, in and around the retailing industry for 20 years. And I said to myself, you know, I'm not learning as much now as I was back at the beginning. And, and uh, I, I'm not challenged in the way I'd like to be challenged. Maybe I should do something different. And, and I think that happens to a lot of people in their 40s if they've done one sort of thing for, for a number of years. And so I stepped back and I did some career counseling. Uh, and the woman with whom I did that it helped put me through some exercises and helped understand who I am and what I'm, what I'm good at and what I love. And I, and I came down to two things. Uh, I, I, I could become a business journalist or I could become a professor. And uh, I said, well, the second of those is something I could test. I could go uh, get some, some university, some business school to, to let me teach a course and see if I like the teaching part of it. It was hard to test the research part of it. But at least I could te test the teaching part of it. And I was living in Denver at the time. So I said, uh, le let me ask a couple of schools in Denver if they'd let me teach Marketing 101, because I was kind of a marketing-focused uh, entrepreneur. And it uh, turned out all three of them said yes. And so I found myself teaching Marketing 101 on three different campuses to three different uh, groups of students all at the same time. Uh, and, and I found out two things. I loved it. It was just absolutely what I loved. And I was pretty good at it. So I said, okay, this looks like my calling. And, and it has turned out to be exactly that. Little did I know in the first 20 years of my uh, you know, post-education life that, that the career I'm in now really is my calling. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do it so well if I hadn't had the first career. Yeah. Because the fact that I've done what I teach makes an enormous difference. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really a lucky guy. I consider myself very fortunate to be able to get up in the morning and, and yeah, do you, what I love to do. That should be all, the goal for all of us, shouldn't it? Absolutely. You recently participated in the Lehigh Silicon Valley uh, program, and I know you've done that for uh, a, a, few, uh, a few times. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience and the students you've met there and what your takeaways were from, you know, your ability to engage with uh, currently high students? Well, it's kind of fun what, what Chris and Lisa asked me to do. Uh, one of my 
four books, uh, my, my second one, Getting to Plan B is the core book that, that they read for that uh, Lehigh Silicon Valley experience. So It's on my desk, by the way. I, ju- <laughs> I just finished it. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so what happens is the students have read the book. They actually have. That's one, one good thing to know. It isn't they were just told to read the book, but they actually did read the book. And so I show up on Zoom for an hour, and I answer whatever questions they want to ask, some of which turn out to be related to the book. Uh, but the, some of the most interesting questions don't have very much to do with the book, but have to do with life and careers and, and h- how you, you know, as a young person, think about what lies ahead and prepare yourself for that. Uh, so the, 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 the quality of the, uh, the curiosity of the students and the questions I get asked is what brings me back. It's, it's, it's just really fun to be around young people. And we don't have undergrads at uh, London Business School. So right. a chance to be around some undergrads yeah. is a lot of fun. You mentioned that it's hard for a recent graduate to go straight to business school these days, particularly the top tier business schools. And I think their argument would be, you know, the the young person hasn't negotiated anything or hasn't actually, you know, and you know, dealt with a real balance sheet, these kind of things. I think folks, you know, they tell folks to go out there and, and, and work for, for a few years. What? Do you have advice for our current students that know that they want to go to business school? Should they challenge themselves to go right away? Would you challenge them to go out and work for a few years? Uh, well, actually, I get asked that question all the time, not by not by the, the college seniors themselves, but by their parents. So yeah. in the work I do with entrepreneurs around the world, um, the entrepreneurs are saying, well, I've got a kid at you know this school or that school, and he or she is thinking of going to business school. Um, you know, what do you think? Where should they go? What should they study? And so on. And, and I say, well, wait a second. Let's t- take a step back. You get the most value out of business school if you really understand how a business works. And so what I tell uh, these young people's parents is advise your son or daughter to to go get a job in or, or start a business, whatever, but go do whatever, you know, strikes their passion and do it if you're in a in a bigger company. If you're not starting your own business, do that until you get promoted twice. Twice, okay. And, and if you've been promoted twice, that suggests that you're learning something about how the world works and figuring it out. And somebody's recognized that that you're getting that learning. Uh, and and if at that point you, you think maybe a business school education would help you achieve your goals, then then go do it then. But yeah. don't do it now because you won't really get the value out of the business education that you would get if you knew how businesses really worked. Thank you for, for sharing that. Let me ask you about Europe and London Business School. And, and could you quickly um, describe for the audience the environment or the approach to entrepreneurship in, in Europe compared to the United States? I think the commonality across people from all these different places is that they pretty quickly come to understand that that successful entrepreneurship isn't about coming up with an idea of, of something you can sell. It's about finding a customer problem that needs to be solved, whether that's a, a, a problem that a business has or a consumer has, and then uh, figuring out, out a way to solve that problem better than other uh current providers are solving that that's really the core of most not all but most 
entrepreneurial companies. And when we can get our, our students at LBS to, to think about problems uh, that customers have, unmet needs, you might call them, and, and then devote their time and attention to finding a way to solve those problems, you know, off they go. I, I think about one of my students from from uh, back in 2009. He, he was a guy who was uh, from Senegal and he'd worked for the UN uh, and had learned a lot about the remittances business, you know, how, how people send money back to their home countries from, you know, where they're living now. And and that business at that time was a uh, was not digitally enabled. It, it was it was a you know go to the shop, you well, know, give him your cash. Yeah, wire kind, transfer, kind of send it along. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Ishmael said, uh, I want to transform that, and I want to focus that on Africa. And he's built a phenomenal business that called World Remit that does just that. He was one of the very early people to to bring digital sophistication to money transfer. Well, you know, that's a guy from the developing world who saw a problem, had this some of the skills, not all of them. So he, he hadn't been in the money transfer business. He had to bring in a team that complemented his skills to do that. Uh, but boy, what they've accomplished is remarkable. And, and that's what that's what entrepreneurs do. And, and we might think that's different all around the world, but you know what? It's pretty much the same all around the world. I'd like to talk about your your new book. You know, you've asserted something, and I was curious as to where you know this this idea that in today's economic climate it's a great time to start a business. And I was thinking about, man, that's you know that I'm not so sure. Um, I, I'm I'm guessing that those opportunities and and the way that um, you know that's not a U.S. centric um, per, uh, right. perspective, but. So, so could you talk a little bit about that, you know, th that notion that despite, you know, inflation and uncertainty and, you know, war and climate change, you know, what, what makes it a great time to start a new business? Well, what, what happens, and we're seeing it, uh, what happens when economic, economic times look like they're going to be tough or maybe are tough Big companies pull in their horns. They start laying off people. They cut costs. They cancel some of the innovative uh, projects they may, might have underway because those are going to have uncertain payoffs, and they're worried about their their short-term earnings. So big companies are pulling in their horns. Uh, that means less innovation, uh, and it also means less competition for the entrepreneur who who inevitably is going to take on a, a competitor much bigger than the than the startup is. So, so number one, you have less competition because the big guys are are uh, are withdrawing. Uh, number two, because that's happening, resources of various kinds become cheaper. Talent becomes cheaper. Real estate becomes cheaper. The various inputs that you need to get your business started. Uh, become cheaper and more plentiful. It's easier to find the good people you need. Uh, and then number three, from the perspective of the entrepreneur himself or herself, you know, you might be working in a in a big company as I was at Gap all those years ago. And and you might, if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, you probably have ideas about what you might do. And those ideas are mulling around in the back of your head. And then when you realize 
that that uh, there's a downturn coming and your company is probably not going to promote you anytime soon, you might say, well, you know what? I've had these ideas kicking around in my back of the in the back of my head. Maybe it's time to get rolling. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot that comes together to say that that it really is a wonderful time. And of course, there's there's a lot of history of companies that got started in very d- difficult times. HP got started in the Great Depression. Airbnb got started in the middle of the 2008 financial crisis. You know, there there are tons of stories of companies that got their start in tough times. And this so, this is the right time to break the rules. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, your new book uh, just released last month, Break the Rules, Six Counterculture Conventional Mindsets of, uh, of Entrepreneurs That Can Help Anyone Change the World. And we do a inside the episode um, uh, feature on our, on our website. And we'll link to the book for our audience, John, so that they can, uh, they can find their way, their way to it. What is counterconventional about your mindset or about the mindset that you talk about in the book? I'd been an entrepreneur, and and since uh, you know, since I came to London Business School, I spent uh, time in classrooms with, with probably a couple of thousand entrepreneurs by now. You know, the aspiring ones in my MBA classes, but also the ones I work with in our exec ed programs. And and it has long been clear to me that entrepreneurs are different than other business people. But the academic research that was done uh, decades ago now that tried to understand what those differences are was any, was unable to find any differences. So for every, you know, swashbuckling extrovert, you know, like um, like Richard Branson, who started Virgin, there's an introvert like Michael Dell. For, for every PhD starting a tech business, there's some an immigrant like uh, Hamdi Ukulaya who started Chobani yogurt, biggest yogurt brand uh, in the U.S. today. So, so the academic world has been basically unable to figure out what those differences are. And yet, I knew, I know, I, I know in my heart that there are differences. So I said, well, I wonder if I could figure out what those differences are, even though nobody else has been able to do that. And fortunately. Um, I've spent the last 20 years developing uh, more than 50 case studies on entrepreneurs and their companies because I teach with cases. And so I've had a ringside seat, a very close in-depth look at what makes these, these people tick. And so when I, when I set out a couple of years ago to say, you know, the world needs to be more entrepreneurial, but it doesn't know what it means, what, what, what we mean when we say that. Um, I, I need to figure out you know, what are these differences between entrepreneurs and, and other successful, not unsuccessful, but successful business people? And so I look back on that body of case research I'd done and, and the experiences I'd had face-to-face with all these entrepreneurs, and I was able to identify six specific mindsets that, uh, frankly, fly in the face of much of what we teach in business schools about how you should run a company. Um, and that kind of run counter to the big pra- the the so-called best practices that are found in many of those big companies, and and uh, the book is about the research that that led to these six mindsets, and stories, of course, that bring them to life, with uh, entrepreneurs living them every day. Entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, but also a whole bunch of entrepreneurs that nobody's ever heard of, but who exemplify 
uh, these six things. And I, and I call them counterconventional because they, they break these conventional rules that we teach in school and that big companies tell you you should do. Could you give us a glimpse into one of the case studies? I, I think one of my favorite ones is about e- Elon Musk, which is, which is a story that's, that everybody thinks they know about. And, and, and uh, it's remarkable what Musk has accomplished. It's also now remarkable what he's messing up with Twitter, but that's another story. <laughs> um, but, but the thing that people haven't realized about Musk is that he does something which I call ask for the cash and ride the float. So good entrepreneurs... Uh, don't do what big companies do. When, when, when a big company wants to do something new, they figure out, okay, well, how much do we have to invest to uh, you know, build a new factory or a production line or, or, or build a prototype or do the research that underlies it or whatever it is? How much do we have to invest? What are the cash flows we think we're going to get out of that investment over time? And do those cash flows provide enough return on that initial investment to make the project worth doing. That's kind of B-School Finance 101. Well, entrepreneurs don't don't think of, about it that way. They say, look, if, if I identify a customer problem that's compelling enough that the customer will pay me to solve that problem and pay me up front, uh, th- then I can ask for the customer to do that. And, and if I get paid up front before I make the product, then I'm going to have enough cash not only to make the product but to do all the other stuff i have to do to get a business underway michael dell is one example of that we pay for the computer before we we get it but musk is sort of the poster child so i i think it's not widely known that the initial tesla vehicle was something they called a roadster and when musk and his partners wanted to get tesla started they said well let's do a little road show and see if we can sell some roadsters so they did a road show in california uh, and invited uh, people having three characteristics to come to these uh, presentations. People with a lot of money, people who are environmentally conscious, and people who like fast cars. Mm-hmm. And they said to those people, we're going to build this company called Tesla. We're going to build a really fancy little roadster that's going to go from zero to 60 in a nanosecond. Uh, would you like one? The price is $100,000 paid in advance tonight. Well, guess what? They sold 100 Roadsters for $100,000 apiece. Do the math. That's 10 million bucks in the bank account before you have built Roadster number one. Well, that that principle has funded Tesla through its entire journey. So when, when they... When they finally got to doing the Model 3, which is more a mass market vehicle now, uh, people were really excited that the price point for a Tesla was becoming at least somewhat more affordable. And almost a half a million people signed up to buy a Model 3, again, putting $1,000 down in this case. Well, do that math. Half a million people, $1,000 down. You've got a half a billion in cash with which to do the engineering, fit out the factory, buy the tooling, and all of that. So so Tesla is fundamentally a customer-funded business. Yes, they've raised some venture capital, most of which actually came from Musk himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fundamental economic driver of that business is asking for the cash up front and then riding the float to do everything else you have to do. It's, it's I think, the most powerful of the six mindsets and it sets entrepreneurs apart from from others in big companies. Thank you so much for sharing that. You 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 know your title the title of the book 
talks about the mindsets that can help anyone change the world, not make, you know, make more money or, or make as much money as possible. Uh, that, you know, changing the world's a tall order. Um, but look what Musk has done. I think arguably Elon Musk has single-handedly make, made electric vehicles relevant. Yes, there were EVs before Tesla, uh, but it was hard to argue they were particularly relevant. There, not many were being sold, not many were being driven. There are a lot of barriers, and and Musk has crashed through those barriers, and and uh, you know here we are in a very different place today. So, has he changed the world in his little corner of the world? There, I, I, I believe he has. Yeah. Um, do you sense that? That's that sentiment of changing, you know, leading with changing the world or impact of 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 someone's idea or or, or someone driving someone's entrepreneurship or, or their experience um, versus the objective function of making money. Um, is that tried and true to entrepreneurship as long as you've been involved? Is that a relatively new framing? Is that a future framing where? Um, uh, the, the motivation is is impact um, impact first and maybe money second. You know, we use the word social entrepreneur today yes. sometimes to talk about people who want to who 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 put impact first. But in my experience, all not all, but almost all entrepreneurs are out to change something for the better. Yeah. All right. Now, now Musk's impact on the world with what EVs can do for our environment it is more substantial than the impact another entrepreneur down the road might have. But, but I find that almost everybody, not, not everybody, but almost everybody who starts a business is doing so because they want to change their little corner of the world in some way to, to make it better. Uh, and, and, and yes, profit is part of how you get it done, but it's not the primary goal for most entrepreneurs. And frankly, I don't think it's ever been. Mm-hmm. I think most entrepreneurs are trying to make the world a, a better place, some little part of the world a, a better place. And yeah, I'm going to make some money as I do that. Uh, but for most of them, that's the goal. Yeah. This is, it's a, a, a place for, um, for risk tolerant folks uh, who, who are not afraid to, you know, make mistakes. What mistakes have you seen, and, and what, what, can, what can our audience learn from, from those? I think there are a lot of common mistakes. I, I think one of them is, is focusing on revenue and profit, not on cash. Uh, and, and I see it over and over and over again. Uh, e- even successful entrepreneurs, many of them could tell you in detail what their P&L looks like but have no clue about the balance sheet. And yet where cash sits is on the balance sheet. It's not on the P&L. And uh, when times get tough, if you run out of cash, that's a really pretty bad day as an entrepreneur. So, so one, of the, one of the most common mistakes is not understanding the importance of cash and, and cash flow. A second one is, has to do with one of the six mindsets, uh, which I call problem first, not product first logic. So, so in many big companies, uh, it's all about the product. So, you know, we have Coke and new Coke and diet Coke and Coke zero and all kinds of other Cokes, all these little tweaks to the product line. It's very common in big companies, but entrepreneurs don't start with a product. The good ones don't, they start with a problem. Uh, there's a, there's a 
famous investor in California named Vinod Kosla, who was an entrepreneur before he became a VC. And he says very simply, nobody will pay you to solve a non-problem. Find a big problem to solve and you'll have a big opportunity. Um, so, so that's another mistake that yeah. I think entrepreneurs make is getting too, too focused on and in love with their product rather than focusing on the customer problem. Leaning into this problem idea, I want to ask you about, um, if I can, one more of the mindsets, and that is think narrow, not broad. And I, I would imagine that in, in, in your research or experiences, thinking too broad could be a mistake. But could you talk a little bit about what you mean, think narrow, not broad? I would imagine that's, that's not advice that most of our undergraduates get. Phil Knight, when he started Nike... Uh, started Nike because he thought distance, he's, he was a distance runner. Uh, he, he thought uh, distance runners had a problem. Uh, the existing running shoes at the time came from Germany and they were really made for sprinters. And when sprinters tra train, they run around tracks. Uh, when distance runners train, they run on dirt roads and paths and, and they run many more miles and they get a lot of ankle sprains and they get shin splints from all of that training. And he said, we need different shoes. Uh, so he and his track coach, Bill Bowerman, set out to make a, a better shoe for elite distance runners, like people who could run a four minute mile. Now, how big is that target market? It's tiny, right? But once you figure out how to make a good running shoe for elite distance runners and people wearing your shoes start winning Olympic medals, guess what happens? You know, other people want your shoes. And then once you've figured out how to design shoes, how to sh source those shoes in Asia, how to get, an, uh, you know, elite athletes to endorse those shoes, which helps you in the marketing, you've learned some things that you can then say, well, gee, what if we what if we get John McEnroe involved and let's do it for tennis? And then we get Michael Jordan involved and we do it for basketball because those shoes, they all have to do different things, right? Uh, not rocket science, very simple. But the notion is if you start with a very, very tiny and focused target market that's got a problem that is currently unsolved or not well solved, and you can solve it, you're going to learn a bunch of things that are then going to help you grow into new segments and new product lines and whatever. So you don't have to do something that's going to move the needle on day one, as, as big companies want you to do. Uh, don't worry about moving the needle. We're about finding a problem that some, uh, some group of customers have that, that, that you can solve. And to the extent that you identify a very narrowly defined uh, group of customers, you are able to focus better on their needs because their needs are more homogeneous. The bigger the group, the more heterogeneous the needs, the harder it is to meet them. But if you have a really narrowly defined market like elite distance runners, you know exactly what they need and you can build it. Is there any, I don't necessarily like the word mantra, and I know advice or words of wisdom, what, what would you say to the, to the you know, 20 year olds that are at Lehigh and and have the inclination or have an idea um, and, and can see themselves uh, as an entrepreneur some, someday. What would, what would you tell those young people? I guess I'd say a couple of things. Uh, number one, I'd say do what you love. Uh, there's a, a woman in Colorado that wrote a book uh, two or three decades ago called 
do what you love, the money will follow. And Marcia Sinatar. And her thesis is, if you're doing something you love, uh, it, it won't be work. It'll be fun. And you, you'll do it really well because you love it so much. And you'll do it better than other people who are trying to do the same thing, but they don't love it. Um, so number one, I'd say do it do what you love. Don't worry about what's hot tomorrow. Is it going to be crypto? Is it going to be AI? Is it going to be, you know, whatever? Don't worry about that. Uh, do something post Lehigh that you really love. The second thing I would say is if you decide to join a company, find a company where you're going to learn the most. Don't, don't worry about, you know, other stuff. Learn about the next stage of your learning. You know, you've learned a bunch of stuff at Lehigh, but what you haven't yet learned is how the business world works, really works. And so, you know, take a job in a in a company where, in the line of work you think you want to do, uh, where where you're going to learn the most, and and let your first job be one more learning experience for you. I think those are the two things that I would I would tell young people today. I do have one one final uh, question, but I, I just want to say thank you. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to, to be with you today and, and to um, um, perhaps uh, widen the aperture uh, for the for the Lehigh audience into some of the work that you've done and some of uh, some of your ideas. It's been it's been a real honor and a great pleasure. I want to thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's uh, it's a treat. This is um, Joe Buck again. Go Getters podcast, and I've had the pleasure of being with John Mullins today, class of 60, uh, 1967, degree in mathematics from Lehigh, and as you heard us talk about, released the, his latest book last month, "Break the Rules: The Six Counter Conventional Mindsets of Entrepreneurs That Can Help Anyone Change the World." You will find a link to that in our inside the episode. Uh, webpage. John, my last question is is one that we ask all of our guests on the Go-Getters podcast. It is not an original question, but it is existential in nature. And it is this. Uh, John Mullins, is there anything you know for certain? Uh, nope. <laughs> one word answer. I, you know, I live in the, the world that entrepreneurs live in. And, and what entrepreneurs do so well is is cope effectively with uncertainty. Uh, we live in an uncertain world. We always have, and we always will. Uh, so I, I, don't, I, I don't know anything for real, for sure. But, Perfect. You know, I appreciate the answer. Find a way. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the answer, John. Thank you again so much. Thank you, Joe. This has been Go Getters, a podcast from Lehigh University, hosted by Joe Buck. Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations. I'm Lisa Getzler, Executive Director of the Baker Institute. I first met John in Scotland when we were both participating in the Roundtable for Entrepreneurship Education organized by our friends and colleagues at Stanford University. I invited John to be a member of the inaugural Advisory Council for the Baker Institute in 2010. And since then, he has provided students with his expertise as a guest in our Lehigh Silicon Valley program. When he wrote his new book, I was honored to be asked to provide a comment for the book jacket. Special thanks to co-producers Janet Norwood and Kate Reculia, media production specialist Jarrett Brown, and the Lehigh University Office of Development and Alumni Relations. 
go inside the episode at lehigh.edu slash go-getters to learn more about John's work, the Baker Institute, and the entrepreneurs and founders getting their start at Lehigh. Don't forget to subscribe to Go-Getters on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so that other listeners can find us.